Lesson 12. Uh, excited to do it. Here's kind of where we've been. This is a, a little bit of understanding. We came to a recap to talk about this, of uh, the laws of the universe and what the laws of the universe are. And we've been running through them. I'll go ahead and give them all to you. And the laws of the kingdom that set themselves up like this. We looked at the world, the, the world and the angels, the order of creation. We looked at Noah and Abraham. And now we're in this right here. We're in the law, how worship came about. We looked at worship, how God established a system of worship. And now we're bringing into the rituals and the rules of the kingdom. And we're coming into what is God trying to do with this group of people. Now the moment we begin to come out of this, it's easy to perhaps look at the kingdom as it relates to Adam and Eve and Abraham and Noah. Those are individual people. But now we get into a system of God's government and in the system of God's government that we're dealing with, now we're dealing with millions of people. How many of you know if you got millions of people, you got millions of problems? Uh, <laughs> I heard a pastor say one time, he said, I'm not trying to grow my church because if I grow my church, I grow my problems, right? So I don't know if I like that, but I could probably agree. So now that we're in this God has brought them out of Egypt and God is establishing, we've already looked at that, he's establishing a race of people, he's establishing a kingdom of people. Well, that kingdom of people, if you know anything about humans, they need to have somebody in charge. By the very nature, we create chaos and rebellion and by our very nature, we try to establish our own systems of government and rules and regulations. But God steps in and says, no, 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 no. It's not the way it's going to happen. My kingdom is a kingdom of order. And my laws govern the universe, and not only do they govern the universe, my laws govern my people. And this is what we've been tackling. This is lesson 12 now. We're coming into this to where we're going to talk about the kingdom of God and all God's kingdom bounds. We're going to talk about the social life. Because the one thing we know about three million people is if we stick them in the middle of a wilderness together, you better know somebody's going to have to tell them how to get along with each other. Because by nature, our flesh takes over. And here's the interesting thing. This isn't spirit-led, born-again people. These people don't have the spirit of God living in them. And these people do not, have not been born again. They're nothing more than fleshly, carnal people that God has adopted as his own. And you leave them alone for a while. If you ever want to know what happens to fleshly, carnal people, read the book of Judges. They repent and say they're really sorry. A week later, they're not sorry. And then everything falls apart, and then they tell God they're sorry, and then a week later, they're not sorry. And that's the entire book of Judges. So God has to come in and establish rituals, customs, decrees. Why? Because this three million people that's now in the wilderness as his people, and they've seen these miracles that he's done, and they're all championing, that's our God. He just defeated Egypt. We're, you know, we're out here just kind of a motley crew of people. Like, this is exciting. We're free at last, free at last. But the reality of that, if you ever read the, the book of Numbers, right now we're going to talk about the book of Exodus. Uh, next week we'll pick up the book of Numbers in the communal life. But right now we're here at the book of Leviticus. But if you, if you fast forward to the book of Numbers and you start looking at them as a community of people, what you realize is this community of people starts going, I want to go back to the old ways. I want to go back to Egypt. I had a house there. It was easier there. Uh, even though I was in slavery, I just wish I could go back. Because what it tells us about social life is that many times uh, to have bounds is bring security to people. Even if they go back into the bondage. It's why you can have a husband and a wife relationship and he abuses her but she'll never leave because it's more secure to be with him than alone. Well, that's kind of where they're sitting. They're sitting at that we've been under Egypt, controlled, but we were told when to get up, when to go to work, what to eat, when to eat, but we had somewhere, we had a system and now we're out here with no system. We're living in tents. We're trying to figure out who's in charge. I heard Moses is. Don't talk about him because when we did, the earth swallowed that guy up. So it's a whole new, I'm sick of this food. I want to go back. So God steps in the book of Leviticus to this motley crew of people because he doesn't want them to be a motley crew. He wants them to be a holy nation. And so he steps into the holy nation to begin to lay out these decrees of social life. 
Leviticus is probably one of the most misunderstood, most debated books and argued books because it's the book that says things like this, a man shouldn't sleep with a man, but neither should you cut the sides of your beard. Uh, homosexuality is wrong, but you should not eat bacon. So it is a weird book to debate what, what is sin and what isn't sin and what sins transfer over and what sins did Jesus take care of. And so anytime we debate hardcore sin, people will pull up this because this is where a lot of the rules and decrees come for this organic nation that God is going to organize. Leviticus chapter 19 is where we start. The Lord also said to Moses, give the following instructions to how many of them? The entire community. In other words, it's not up for option. What I'm going to share with you is to cover everybody. And, and then he just lays it out as it's, it's an easy thing for them. It's not an easy thing. He said, you must be holy. I'm holy. Now, the reality of this is they'll never accomplish it. it. It's such a powerful thing. It shows up in the New Testament. The New Testament says the same thing. Be holy. I'm holy. And if you're not holy, you'll never see me. But the reality of this request, it's impossible. They're not going to be able to pull it off. But God is okay because he's going to bring a remedy thousands of years in the future, but if God just left them alone and didn't really bring them, disaster would strike. They would kill each other, they would die of diseases, they would die of malnutrition, all kind of things out here in a desert. So God steps in and says, look, I'm trying to do something here. The next verse says this in Leviticus 25, show your fear of God by not taking advantage of each other. So now God is stepping in saying, look, I know, I know I'm your Lord and I'm your God, but if we're not careful, we won't have to worry about Egypt. We'll kill each other off. Come on. Uh, Galatians uh, chapter uh, 6, I think, chapter 5 says, uh, you keep biting and devouring each other, you're going to destroy each other. So even in the New Testament, we'll, we don't need the devil to kill us off. We'll kill each other off. We'll gossip you right out the door. So God steps in and says, look, you humans, if you're not careful, you'll take advantage of each other. But he says this. I love how he says it. He says, if you want to live securely. So in other words, God cares about the condition of their life. God doesn't want them out here in the wilderness following him miserable. He wants them healthy. He wants them happy. He wants them following. And he simply says, so if you want to live securely, then just follow what I'm about to tell you. I love the way my dad puts it. If you just live the Bible, your life goes well. I heard somebody arguing and debating the reality of God, and they were arguing over, is God real or is he not, and is the Bible real? And I love what the one guy said. The one guy said, if the Bible is real or not, written by God or not, and God is not there or he is there, he said, here's one thing I can tell you. If you just read the Bible and live its principles, you'll have a better life. Because it says things like, don't murder, don't hold grudges. So God steps in and God says, what I'm wanting to do is I'm wanting to fulfill my decrees and accomplish something here. Let me give you this thought. There was a social expectation upon God's people. One thing we're teaching on Sunday is that God, God has expectations on it. And that's kind of a dirty word, that God expects something out of me. We're in such a culture that we just want God to love us and leave us alone. God's like, no, if I pulled you out of Egypt and I brought you here as my people, I've got an expectation upon you socially. I don't want you to kill each other. I don't want you to die of diseases. I, I want you to be different. I want you to be holy. I want people to look at you and know you belong to me. That's what God is after. So he says how they would follow his decrees and treat each other was cr a critical part of his government. So the way we treat each other is a critical part of the kingdom of God. They'll know we are Christians by the way we love each other. Not the way we love the world, the way we love each other. So the way we treat each other is part of God's government. It's why in the book of Corinthians it says if we don't honor the body, now whether that's the body of Christ or the church, which is the body of Christ, it says many of you are sick and you die at a young age because you don't, you don't discern what God is doing with his people. And here's, here's something really strange about this thinking about God's relationship to human beings. Jesus shows up to Saul on the road to Damascus and points at Saul and says, why are you persecuting me? But he had never persecuted Jesus. He was just killing his kids. 
But Jesus and his kids were one and the same. Jesus took it very personally. So God steps in and says, look, you're my nation. How you treat each other reflects on me, so be good to each other. Now this is what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about the social expectations, and I pray that it opens your mind to reading the Bible. Some of them will carry over to today. Some of them have been ended by Jesus Christ. But God establishes the social expectations, how these people are to act, how they're to live, how they're to interact with God and each other, and the Lord lays it out. So let's jump into it. Here's the thought. And this is why I think God is so concerned to do this. Seemingly, God was always going to be, and this is strange in the Old Testament because it seems the Old Testament seems very archaic that God is either out there somewhere by himself in the heavenlies or he's in this little thing that's a box. But what I've read, and, and it kind of threw me because I had to rethink some things when I read it because it sort of took me by, took me out of my box of what I thought about the God of the Old Testament. Seemingly, God was going to be intimately involved in the newly formed race of people, his people. God did not just bring them out of Egypt to just leave them there. I didn't just bring you out and go, okay, good luck. Hope you enjoy it out here now that you're free. God brings them out of Egypt because he wants to intimately be involved. He wants his people to know him. Look at this verse. It's an incredible verse. This is the verse that kind of threw me. Leviticus 26, 11. I will live among you. That's strange. How does a holy God live with unholy people? Because what we teach people is God can't be in the presence of sin. So God says, I'm going to live among you. I will not despise you. I'll walk among you. Now that doesn't seem like it's going to be a God that just is up in heaven raining fire down all the time. It seems that he's wanting to do with these people what he did with Adam and Eve. He wants to intimately commune with them. He desires to be their God. He desires to now not just be a God that is like Zeus and all these uh, other gods that may have been out there. He desires to intimately be involved with his human creation. He wants to walk with them, live with them, and talk with them. Now, though that's going to be a a weird way he pulls this off in the Old Testament with sacrifices and priests and rituals, by the time we get to the New Testament, every bit of this is what we would call being born again. I want to live among you. We would say in you. I want to walk with you by the Holy Spirit. And because why? I'm your God and you're my people. This is the New Testament played out in one verse. I am going to live among you, Jesus in the flesh. But not only among you, in you, because I'm an intimate God. I want to walk with you, but not just Jesus in the flesh, the Spirit, where Galatians 5, walk in the Spirit, step by step. Why? I want the world to know that I am the God of my people. Now, in other words, this is where we'll end up in the New Testament. God has always intended that people could look at you and see him. And if people do look at you and don't see him, something is skewed. They are to see the living presence of God Almighty. It's, uh, I'm not going to brag on my parenting because I don't think I've done that good at times. But I will say this. All of my children serve the Lord. They love God, read their Bible, filled with the Spirit, and they go to church. And I don't make any of them do that. They do it on their own. Now, if you say to me, and this is what I'm working through, how, how did you raise them? And please don't take this the wrong way. I never sat down and read the Bible to my children on a systematic, girls, we got to read our Bible. I never went to their room and had prayer time with them. All right, let's join hands and have prayer time. I know that sounds like I'm a horrible father. I don't, I'm trying to work through that like, oh, was I a good dad? Um, but one thing they did see, and I, one of my daughters sits right back here, that I think if you polled her when I wasn't in the room, One thing I know my children saw, 
is that they saw in their father the life of God. And it made them jealous to know that God. Because they watched me walk with him through hard times, and now they want to walk with him. They've watched me read my Bible every night for 20, 30 years, and now they, read, they all read their Bible every night. Right? So it wasn't that I had to beat them. It's that I had to live it in front of them to make them jealous to want him. I've never made them come to church. I've never made them serve Jesus. As a matter of fact, with all of my older daughters, when they get older, I have a kind of brief conversation with, I serve Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I believe he's God. I believe he's the only way for eternal life. But if you don't believe that, that's okay. You're an adult. If you want to believe in Buddha or whoever, you go for it. But this is what I believe that I pass down to you. Now, now it's going to be very hard for them to grab the reality of that if in their father they've never seen the breath and presence of God themselves. So even if my children walk away, they will walk away willingly from God, but it won't be because their dad didn't show it to them. So, so I, don't, I didn't mean to teach about myself tonight, but, but what God is attempting to do is that in his people, with all these archaic social laws he's going to put out there, like don't have tattoos, don't, don't, don't. It's not that God necessarily hates the stuff. Is that when the other nations look at his people, he wants them to see God. He doesn't want them to see Pharaoh and offering their children to Melech and sleeping with anybody they want to sleep with. All the way through the book of Leviticus, over and over and over, God says, you will not do what those detestable nations do. You will not look like them, eat like them, think like them, sleep around like them. Why? Because when they look at you, I want to make them jealous for me. Now, that's a strange concept because oftentimes we think God's rules are to squelch us. And anything God puts out there for his kids is not to squelch us. It's so that his life will manifest in us, and that manifested life will make other people jealous. Now, they may not serve God, but they'll definitely question, why are you so different, Barry? Like, I look at you, something different. Scott, what's... Your kids begin to question. Your friends at work go, every time something happens, you never lose your cool. Why? Okay, well, let me tell you why. It's because in the middle of hell, I have a living God that talks with me and he walks with me and he tells me I am his own oh I'm singing somebody's gonna cut it off now and the joy we share as we tarry right it, it, that, that is what God now he was going after this in Leviticus guess what he's going for this morning when you woke up same thing same identical thing I want to live in you walk with you breathe in you why so everybody in your 50 feet becomes jealous of me uh, that's, I kind of went Pentecostal preaching, and I got so much to go. <laughs> you can tell I haven't been here in a while. I'm just like burning up on the inside. Let's look at some of the social expectations that may help you. Now, what I've tried to do is this is a very shallow lesson on a very exhaustive subject. My goal tonight is just to whet your appetite, to put a seed in your mind to to get you thinking a certain way and then if you would like to study it deeper there's plenty of information in the world to do it but I'm going to kind of give you the road to do it now in every expectation I'm going to give you I'm going to tell you what's expected by God how that plays out and then whether this expectation is changing or unchanging now, by the word changing or unchanging, I mean once it passes through Jesus Christ, is it still required of us? So, if we claim Jesus, does God still require these things of me? Because some of God's righteous requirements are eternal. He just expects it whether Jesus is here or Jesus isn't here. Some of them, the moment Jesus died, the expectation went on Jesus, I just now have to believe. But the expectation is on him. So I'm going to try to do that in a way. And, and again, it's, please don't think this is exhaustive. It's, it's just the beginning. So the first expectation socially as we read the book of Leviticus that we find out over and over and over and over and over again is that God is distinctly different from all other gods because he's holy. 
And you can't approach him without sacrifices. You, you can't approach him without killing things and bringing blood to him. It's very gory. But the reason is, is because God's righteous expectation is sin has to be atoned for. And if I'm going to walk among you and be among you and none of you are born again, none of you are new creatures in Christ yet, you're sinful, rebellious people, for me to live with you, walk with you and be your God and I'm a righteous God, then therefore I have righteous expectations on you and the righteous expectation on you is you're going to have to kill a dove, a goat, a some type of animal, a sheep. You're going to kill something and bring it to me, a red heifer, and you're going to bring it to a priest. Remember we talked about that uh, several lessons ago, that, that worship of bringing the blood to the priest and the sacrifice. And, and those sacrifices are required from my community because God knew in this community you're going to fail each other, you're going to have things that are unapproved and deserve death, so we're going to set up a system of sacrifice. And then what I require out of you is obedience. If you don't do it, bad things happen. And if you do it, great things happen. I think all of us would agree with that, that are parents. If you obey me, it goes well for you. If you disobey, your kids know it doesn't go well. God had the same system. If you don't have that system established in your home, your home is chaos. Right? I mean, obey, it goes well with you. Disobey, mom's mad, mom's mad, I'm mad, I'm mad. The dogs aren't happy, dogs aren't happy. It's just chaos in the house. So God knows that if I don't have rules for you to obey, chaos will ensue among my people and not even the donkeys will be happy. Leviticus 20, verse 7 and 8. So set yourselves apart to be holy because I am the Lord your God. Very distinct. I'm your God. I'm not everybody else's God. In other words, what I'm going to require out of you, I'm not even talking about these people. Matter of fact, if you read the Old Testament, you don't really read much about all the other humans on planet Earth. You pick up various nations that just hate God's people, but you don't really pick up a lot of other stuff. If you ever just study world history, there's just all kind of life going on at the same time of the Bible that never even makes it into the Bible. But he's their God. He's the God of the Jews. Keep all of my decrees... By putting them into practice, for I am the Lord who makes you holy. Again, in other words, what I'm trying to have you do is be a reflection of me. In the yellow, I'm holy. I want you to be holy because I'm your God. And so there's this very intertwining of intimacy. Your reflection, my people, my race is a reflection of the God that I am. And we're going to make the other nations jealous of me being the most high. And so he begins to establish these systems. Here's the second one. There's moral expectations. And as you go through it, it's uh, never ending as you read Leviticus almost. It's just one right after another. Moral expectations of how you should love God and how you should love each other. And he lays it out in detail. I'd be here all night if I just went through every scripture. It was exhaustive. I, I'm going to give you one or two just to whet your appetite. But there's full chapters on how we should treat our cousins and our brothers and our sisters and how we should, how we should treat each other that have different problems. And if, and if your dog bites my dog and your donkey gores my donkey, we, we got to figure that out. It's just exhaustive. But what God is trying to establish is that not only does he want you to love him, he wants you to love others as well. Because how we love each other is a reflection of God. That's why in the church today, if we'll love each other, it will, it will be a brilliant reflection of the Lord God Almighty. Now understand this is not preaching a, a preaching point, but it's a thought. It's not show love to the world. We're to do that. We're to love our enemies. The beauty of the world seeing the God of the universe reflected is when we love each other. Like each other. I can love the world. I'll give them a $5 bill and keep driving. Hey, Jesus loves you and keep driving. He doesn't have to come to my home. He doesn't get on my nerves. I don't even know his name. But when you start telling me and you to love each other, and you know my garbage, and I know your garbage, and you know my quirks, and I know your quirks, and I've hurt your feelings, and you hurt my feelings, and we still love each other? Now we're talking about something big. 
because most of the world doesn't do that. We cancel you, we defriend you, we don't talk to you for months. So God established, well, these moral expectations, they too are unending. Because by the time we get to the New Testament, what does Jesus say? I'm going to lump everything up in, in just one thing. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So even though Leviticus is going to set the foundation of it, it also is unchanging. And the sacrifice of obedience is unchanging. God still demands obedience and still demands a sacrifice today. They haven't changed. So both of these are unchanging. Here's an interesting scripture, just a few of them. Do not seek revenge. Been there, done that. Or bear a grudge <laughs> against a fellow Israelite. He didn't really say against, against the you know, Medes and Persians, against a fellow Israelite. Why? Because they're going to hurt your feelings. They're going to lie. They're going to forget. They're going to tell you they'll do something they won't. Don't hold a grudge and don't seek a revenge. But love your neighbor as yourself. That sounds kind of like Jesus, doesn't it? So even what Jesus is going to teach us in the New Testament, the Good Samaritan, who is my neighbor, this is being established back in Leviticus with this, this uh, you know, myriad group of people who is the race of God. He goes on to say this morally, don't steal and do not deceive or cheat each other. So God understands that even though I've brought you out and I've called you to be holy, I know you're not, so I'm just going to have to give you a, a worldwide litany of rules that I'm expecting out of you because you're my people. So as you go through and read them again, I would have been here for two hours just don't do this to your brother, don't, don't look at your mother that way, don't say this to your father. Like he covers about everything you could cover in these moral expectations of how me and Gary should talk to each other, act to each other. And if Gary dog comes over and eats the food of my dog, then Gary should do this and then I should do that back to Gary. And God has looked at almost everything we could argue over and said, all right, let's see if we can put some things out there. Because remember, they're out in the middle of a wilderness and they don't have a bunch of laws written. They've got Ten Commandments. And out of the Ten Commandments flows this huge book of Leviticus of these written decrees that God expects out of them. So kind of think, I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And there's all these, dear Lord, 4,000 pages. Right? Well, we just want to stimulate the economy. That sounds wonderful. Stimulate the economy. That's about uh, three words. But three words. Stimulate the economy. 4,700 pages later. Well, God, love me with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Entire book of Leviticus later. To let it play out so he doesn't leave much speculation at all. Here's the third one. This is so interesting. I've had two conversations around this already today. There were sexual expectations. Why? It's one thing I'll tell you about humans. We are sexual beings. And if you want to know how sexual, he goes into don't sleep with your mother, don't sleep with your brother, don't sleep with your daddy, don't sleep with your dog, don't sleep with your cow, don't sleep with your cousin. And then you wonder why he brought them out of Egypt? Sleep with my cow? And you brought me out of Egypt and called me your own? Don't sleep, don't have sex with an animal? And you brought me out here? Don't have, don't men, don't have sex with other men. It's a detestable practice. Well, if I'm your kids, why would you be telling me not to sleep with my mother? Gross. Sleep with a dog? You're, ugh, those are such perverted things. And God's like, yeah, I know I brought you out and I called you my own and I called you my people, but I just know you've been 400 plus years in a very vile land where they did anything sexually they wanted and I want you to know I don't approve of it. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what they approved of. But I'm going to give you a list of everything they approved of. They have sex with animals. They have sex with their relatives. They have sex with their uncles. They have sex with their mothers and brothers. They have orgies. They have sex with each other. Men sleep with men. Women sleep with women. I'm just letting you know I brought you out of that culture. My people are different. 
And now here's what's strange. And, and I, again, I had nearly a 45-minute conversation about this today. Th those sexual expectations, as you read it, are the detestable customs that they brought out of Egypt that in Egypt were very excessively uh, checkmarked, approved. In Egypt, the sexual practices of sleeping with your animal approved. Check. Our culture says, you want to sleep with the dog? Sleep with the dog. You want to have sex with your mother? Have sex with your mother. Just whatever you want to do, those were the detestable practices that culture had approved because humans are sexual beings. And it had gotten perverted. But it, if we take this too, we come to that these sexual expectations, they're unchanging. It doesn't matter what culture approves. God has sexual expectations that even if the culture goes, you know what, you can do this and get away with it, and we all clap and go, that's okay, YOLO, you do you. God's like, yeah, you do you, but when you come into my people and you're to reflect me in the way your sexual life is, I have expectations, and I will not allow detestable customs to be in my people. So by the time you come to the New Testament, things like, if you're not married, don't be having sex because that's detestable. Now, it's not in the culture. You could have sex. You could go to the harlots and prostitutes and temples and get away with it and give an offering. It was the customs. It was Diana. It was, the, it was all the, God, the Greek gods. Uh, perversion in sex was in the culture. Jesus uh, affirms a husband and wife in a marriage and says this is what God intended. Jesus himself says Moses and goes back to the writings of Moses to approve the writings of Moses. So all of these, even though I'm living in 2023, and 2023 says, YOLO, you want to be a man with a man? Go for it, girl with a girl. Go for it. You want to be a girl that's a guy that wants to date a girl that's a boy that's not a girl? Go for it. We don't care. Just be happy. We've passed laws. We've now got the Equality Marriage Act passed. You can marry anything you want. We're good. You just do whatever. And, uh, and great. But if you're the people of God, God has expectations sexually. Whether your pastor does, your denomination does, or you do, God has them. And he sets them up, and this is one of them. Don't defile yourselves in any of these ways. And I gave them to you without trying to sound vulgar. They just are in the Bible. If you want to read Leviticus 18, mind-blowing, I'll spare you the details. Because you will read it and go, who in God's name would do this? But God says, don't defile yourself. So what I, what I do know is that when it comes to sexuality, no matter what we approve to do, God says, if you're not careful, you'll defile yourselves because it's not under the banner of what he approves. So for him, you're defiling yourself, even though I, I think it's okay. He says, for the people, now here's what he does. He now connects the customs of the world into the practices of his own people. For the people I'm driving out before you have defiled themselves in these ways. In other words, there are people out there with sexual deviant behavior, not you. So God had to give them rules because they've lived that way for 400 years. They grew up in it. They're, they brought them out as teenagers and they had done whatever they wanted to do in Egypt. And now they're out here, still have testosterone, still have sexual drive, still have sexual needs. And God begins to go, okay, well, I can't do the old Pentecostal way. All right, all the girls on this side of the camp. It's nighttime, girls go that way, boys go this way, all you old people get in the middle of them. That's what we did. When I was growing up, boys on the back of the bus, girls on the front of the bus. And how dare you swim together. Oh, you do not get in the pool together as if we wouldn't lust when a girl was fully clothed. It's just a weird thing. But if you go and look at what God did, God didn't separate a male and female. Uh, he, he sent the tribe of Judah, and we'll teach this next week, all the different tribes, got all the kids, all the teenagers, all the women, all the men, lumped them in so they could have cheated at night. I left my tent to go to your tent. Nobody knew. And God's like, no, 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 not us. That's not the way we do it. Because you're different. Next verse. 
You must obey all my decrees and regulations, and you must not commit any of these detestable sins. Again, it's the sins of sexual deviant behavior. This applies both to native-born Israelites. Now, to show you, weird, this is weird. If I was going to debate it, this, I would hold on to this pretty tightly. My sexual expectations not only apply to those that are native-born who are my people. If some scallywag comes in and tries to say it's different, it's not. No foreigner's going to come in here and try to teach you a new way. And if we're not careful, what happens today in Christianity is we claim to be God's people, but we let foreign concepts, foreign ideas, foreign ways of thinking infiltrate the church so much to the point that we're no different than the world. Just as many people have deviant sexual behaviors in the church, sleep around, have sex before marriage, homosexuals, lesbians, perverted marriages, swingers, and they all go to church. Because what happens is you let foreign ideas and customs come into native-born people of God and the people of God become detestable and no longer reflect Him. I'm not trying to be prophetic here. I don't claim to be one. But I would say that if we were talking honestly, much of born-again people have allowed the foreign concepts of lustful worldly living to infiltrate the camp and to infiltrate churches even to the point today that we have churches that will ordain mixed marriages and same marriages and twist Bibles. There's a whole new video documentary out now just about the LGBTQ movement that uh, all that's been written has been added later, that God never intended homosexuality to be wrong, working overtime to shift and change things, which is cool. It's the world. That doesn't bother me. I expect foreigners to act like foreigners. I expect unsaved people to act unsaved. The problem is, is when foreigners come into born again and we start acting and thinking like them. Because we're to be different. Now, here's how the devil does it to, to distract us. Oh, if you stick to this command to obey, then you become a very religious Pharisee. Who do you think you are? You know you're a sinner too. How dare you judge me? Right? That's kind of the way we parse that today. So that I can't stand up and go, well, you need to obey. Well, you got things wrong with you, Mark. Duh. Don't you come here and listen to me tell you my stories? But just because I have stuff wrong with me doesn't mean I still don't go, he's still right. I may have some garbage to work out myself, but it doesn't make him wrong. And I don't adopt the ways of the world that goes, well, he can just love me dirty. No, 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 he doesn't love me dirty. He changes me. So, I, you know, I, I don't propose that we're all perfect, but I do propose even if we're not perfect, we can't change the rule here. It is what it is. Live godly. You're my kids. And this is how we've got to work that out. Here's the next one. This is an interesting one. Hygiene. Now, the thing about hygiene is it is changing. There's some things that he gave in Leviticus that wouldn't even make sense to us today. Because we have doctors, antibiotic soap, we have medicines. But when you're a motley crew of three million people in the desert and you don't have amoxicillin, <laughs> and somebody comes up with some kind of funk, COVID variant one, not 19, one, it's just going to start there. And you don't have hygiene rules, we'll kill the whole camp off. With one virus, I can kill the whole camp. Now, we would say, this is interesting. I'm going to maybe teach it one day because I, I can't work it out. So I, if I can't work it out, I don't teach it. But it's a good thought. If he's a healing God, why have hygiene rules? Why doesn't he say, oh, don't worry about washing your hands. I'm a healer. Don't worry about sneezing on each other when you got a cold. I'm a healing God. Well, either he's not a healer or he is a healer. I believe he is. He said, I am the Lord that healeth thee. But it also tells me that he has expectations for me not to live stupid because I could die before my time. So he establishes some hygiene laws. Here's some of them. It's a litany of them. Again, it's the funnest reading book ever because you just read it and go, dear God, thank God I wasn't alive then. <laughs> 
The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the guys that are in charge, if anyone has a swelling or a rash, that would have been me. That's why I picked this verse. Everybody hear me call about my rash? <laughs> or discolored skin, that was me, red as a beet, just dear Lord. I would, if I was here in this camp, you ought to be like, don't go listen to him preach. Stay away from him. We don't know what he has. I didn't know what I have. I'm just over here like, oh, gosh, I'm itching like crazy. Well, stay away. That skin colored, it might develop into something serious. So why wouldn't God just heal it then if it's serious? He said, that person must be brought to Aaron the priest and one of his sons, and then that priest will examine the affected area on the skin. Like God is establishing the first order of doctoring. God is letting you know he's not opposed to human help. This thinking that if you go to a doctor you don't have faith is ludicrous. It's ludicrous. Because God himself says if you got a skin problem, go to the priest, let him examine you and look at it. And then you go look at all what was required. God cared about him. The owner, this is a fun one. I've been here too. The owner of a house, now this is a, it's a house that has mold in it. The owner of a house must then go to the priest and say, it happens that my house has some kind of mildew, black mold. But they don't have Clorox. They can't call Serve Pro. I need you to come over, I got something black growing on my tent, I need you to check it out, it looks kind of fuzzy. They can't do that. But mold and mildew just didn't show up last year. It's been here the whole time. So he says, well, before the priest goes in to inspect the house, he needs to empty the house so nothing inside will be pronounced ceremonially unclean, and the priest will go in and examine the mildew and the mold, and then it walks him through what to do. Because God has a community of people that he cares so much about and wants so much to see their health that he even cares about mold in their house. I'm going to throw this to you. I think there's a lot of people praying to God for God to do something, and God's like, man, why don't you just use wisdom? God, I just want you to heal my blood pressure. Okay, why don't you just use some wisdom? Drop about 40 pounds. Let's start there. Use wisdom. But wisdom feels dirty. I like Holy Ghost. I like power. I don't like expectation. I don't like wisdom, I like power. If the man touches you without first raising his hand, rinsing his hands. So this comes out of the context, Leviticus 15. It says if a guy has a discharge, so that's an oozing pus, an infection, uh, some type of uh, internalized discharge, he's, he's leaking. <laughs> I'm going to leave that right there because I don't want to tell you what it's really about. I'm just going to leave it right there. I tell you, it's an interesting book to read. <laughs> if that man who's leaky touches you without first washing his hands, do you mean God cares that I wash my hands? Do you know, I don't know, I don't remember the history of it, do you know how many people died in the 1800s in surgery because of the one stupid thing the doctors didn't wash before they started cutting people open? That was God's idea. Wash your hands. They'll even tell you in COVID, wash your hands. Sneeze into your arm. Well, God had an idea. He said, if, if he doesn't wash his hands and touches you, you go home and wash your clothes. <laughs> that must have been a leaky dude. Oh, man. You're leaking so much, I got to wash my clothes? I don't want to date that dude, right? Uh, uh, somebody that's been in Egypt and got a little too funky in Egypt. Wash your clothes and then go bathe yourself. <laughs> and you'll, or you'll remain unclean to evening. Any clay pot, even in the man's house, has got to be broken. And the wooden utensils that he's touched, anything, you've got to clean it. Why is God doing this? God is doing this because as we live together, even though he's a healer, there's still germs and bacterias and viruses and colds and flus. And, and he just wants you to use practical wisdom. 
And if we're not careful sometimes, we want him to wow us with his magic so we can live as stupidly as possible. <laughs> and it's just not the way kingdom government works. God has expectations on his people. Oh, this is going to hurt. Uh, are we going to Monterey tonight? Not tonight. Not tonight. We'll, 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 we'll go later. <laughs> oh, forgive me of eating that donut. God had nutritional expectations. Who would have ever thought God would have cared what we eat? But he does. Rules and rules of how to handle food and not to eat rotten food. Why? You can get worms. You can get intestinal worms. You can get the scurvy. You can get all kind of diseases from eating rotten. They don't have refrigerators, folks. They can't microwave the food. Right? I mean, come on, just go buy a banana. Two days later, it's rotten. Just leave the mayo open for a day and watch what happens. These people have no refrigerator in the middle of a desert, and God has to give them some nutritional expectations, or there's going to be maggots in your soup. So I don't want you dying on me because you ate something that killed you. I need you to know how to cook your food and not eat food with blood in it because if you eat food with blood in it, you're going to get an intestinal worm and the intestinal worm could rob you of nutrients and you could die on me. So don't eat meat with blood still in it. I mean, he's got all these, he cares about us. Now, this one is changing. By the time we get to the New Testament, you'll, you'll hear the thing, well, just give thanks and eat whatever. But here, in the desert, you need to be real thoughtful about what you're about to put in your mouth. I used to do missions, and I, they would always tell me, now, whatever they put in front of you, eat. I'm like, Ew. whatever they put in front of me? You want me to risk God? What? <laughs> well, listen to this. This is interesting. He said these are instructional Instructions regarding land animals, so God didn't mind if you ate an animal. So come on, vegans, he doesn't. He's not freaking out. He's not freaking out you ate a cow. You can eat a bird. Come on, chicken people. Mm. You can eat marine creatures. Come on, lobster shrimp people. <laughs> you can eat animals that scurry along the ground, squirrels, rabbits for my dad, the way he grew up, snake, rattlesnake, whatever. I mean, come on, it's the South. Don't, don't start acting all northern on me. Deer, ugh, snake, ugh. come on, it's the South. We eat rats. <laughs> hey, if you're hungry enough, don't you get all holy on me. By these instructions, you'll know what is unclean and clean and which animals, and this is interesting, I'm going to teach you which you can eat and what you can't eat. And God does. He establishes a nice menu. Don't you love that, God? I'm just going to go ahead and give you a little menu. You can eat this and don't eat that. That's pretty simple. But it's not to make me miserable and self-righteous and make me feel bound. Like, I can't believe that I can't eat a shellfish. Why does God not want me to have a shrimp? Why can't I eat bacon? I can't eat a pig. <laughs> I just want to eat pig. I love bacon. Because God said, no, it's not because I don't want you to have a piece of bacon. In the middle of this wilderness out here, I want you to know if you're not careful, you'll eat things that are clean or unclean. And I don't want you getting diseases and getting sick on me. Why? Because I'm the God that created these animals and I know what's inside every one of them. So just know as a father, when I tell you what you can and can't eat, it's because I care about you. It's the same as a father and a mother going, no, you really need to eat your vegetables before I give you a blizzard. I just want a blizzard. I know you do. But it's because I care about you. Here's another scripture. This is to show you what I meant by it's changing. Oh, don't you just love God? He makes it so clear. The kingdom of God, there's his government that we're looking at in the book of Leviticus. Oh, even though I just told you about all those nutritional laws, what you can and can't and cannot eat and could eat and can't eat, just know that my kingdom's not a matter of what you eat or drink. Oh, man, is he bipolar? Oh, I just got my menu of what I could and couldn't eat, and I follow people on Instagram that affirm that, and now you tell me I can eat anything? Well, Mark, the kingdom of God is not about eating or drinking. The reason I made it about that in Leviticus is because if they did anything they want, they would have died because of all the health reasons and nutritional reasons and 
They would have lived just like everybody else and not been different. But I want you to live a life of goodness and peace and joy. And then he links up really where we're going to get to in the kingdom in the future is really the government of the kingdom of God is leading every one of us to a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Because in this room right now, the Holy Spirit may say to you, don't ever eat bacon, and she better not ever eat bacon. And the Holy Spirit may say to me, hey, Mark, I want you to quit doing this. Yes, I will. And the Holy Spirit is what keeps me healthy. And the Holy Spirit gives me wisdom to know what to eat and what not to eat. He gives me wisdom to look at nutritional labels and know that's not good, this is good. Well, he goes on to say, but you need to serve Christ because if you'll serve him, you'll please God. And then he goes into this thing again of God and others. God and others. My relationship to God and others. It's what God has been working out the whole time. Final scripture here. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Now this is a council in the book of Acts. They started arguing over food. What can we eat? What cannot we eat? What should we eat? He said, well, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. There's that involvement. And to us to lay no greater burden on you than just a few requirements. You need to abstain from eating food offered to idols. So now it wasn't food that was bacon, lettuce, you know, can I have a hamburger or fries? The food was connected to another God. And so God says, no, you don't eat that food because I, I don't think that would be good. So we're just going to ask that you be careful with that. And then consuming food with blood or meat or strangled animals. And then you need to stay away from sexual immorality. So what we do know from this Leviticus thing is that God still has the requirement, be careful how your life is connected to things that aren't of me. And whatever you do, don't let your sexual deviant behavior not reflect my holiness. And that's still working today. Here's the final one. This is a little too deep. We've got a few minutes, but I hope to spur you. In the social expectations, there's the expectation of the offering. Whether you believe in the tithe or not believe in the tithe, the one thing we cannot argue is that God is a God of the offering. He expected it, and it was expected of his people. In God's mind, you were never to come empty-handed. What would change in the kingdom of God on Sunday if you just walked in the door and every week you walked in, you came in with one thought, I'm just not going to come empty-handed. But it's only a penny. I don't care. I'm not empty-handed. It's only a dollar. Who cares? I ain't going to God's house empty-handed. I'm showing up with an offering. Now, those offerings in Leviticus are many. I'm going to give you a few of them. Um, there was offerings for sin. Uh, you gave a burnt offering. You, you gave a sin offering. Those were animal sacrifices. There were other offerings that were dedicated offerings. They, were, they, they came out of your thanksgiving. You, nothing really required it. It's just that you were thankful and you wanted to bring something and dedicate it to God as an offering of thanks. Thank you, God, for this. And you would bring that. And then there were other offerings that just came out of honor. You wanted to dedicate something to God. You wanted to bring, you could literally dedicate your house. You could dedicate your animal. You could bring something. But here's what I want you to get out of the offerings is that God has an expectation on his people to bring them. We don't talk about it a lot here. It was intentional for what the Lord put on my heart. But know this as a shepherd of this house, not trying to get more money in the bank. But know this, there's no greater way to live than every time you come to the house of God with something in your hand. And it doesn't even have to be money. It could just be something that's meaningful to you. I've had people give watches, rings, hair bows. They just want to bring something to God as a way to... I'm just so thankful that you care for me and watch over my children here. So even beyond the tithe, we find that these offerings, and here's one... There was the guilt offering. It was an offering that if you had committed sin, you were to bring an animal, a ram. And if you brought it, you could bring one of equal value. And though this process, the priest will purify you and make you right and you'll be forgiven. So there were offerings that if you sinned, if you did something, you killed somebody accidentally, you did something against a decree, you could bring an animal to God. There were these kind of offerings. They were instructions regarding, these are the instructions regarding the different kinds of peace offerings you can bring. That word peace can also translate into thankfulness. 
you bring an offering of thankfulness to me. And if you present your peace offering, as, and this is it, as an expression of thanksgiving. So when you come to the house of God and we come up to these tables right here and we dip that communion, I would highly encourage you, have something in the other hand. Even if it's just a note. Anybody ever just send a card to a friend? If you just want to put a note, write a note. God, I don't have any money right now, but I'm just going to give you a note that says, I love you. Do you, are you, do you believe that a note that just said, I love you, could be a, a gift of thanks to him? I've got, uh, I don't know how many letters, but I've got two very meaningful letters that were written to me. It, it had no money to them at all. They were written by someone, just the most kind-hearted letter written to me as their pastor, and I just cherished it. Another person, this is to show you just how sometimes we think offerings, we're just thinking money. A person in this church last year came up and said, here, I wanted to give you a Christmas gift. I said, well, thank you so much. And I opened the Christmas gift up, and it was just three by five envelope cards. And they had written on cards things that I had said through the years that changed their life and how much it meant to them. It's just a stack of cards of... And I, I would even forgot I said things. They said, but every time in a sermon you would say something, it would pierce my heart. I wrote it down and I wanted to say thank you for that. So we have to get back to that that's an expectation is the offering. You know, how good it feels on Christmas to get gifts. How good it feels on your birthday to get a card. What if we just started lavishing each other like that all the time? I just want to tell you how much I love you. I'm thankful for you and for God. All right, the final one is this. If you bring an offering to fulfill a vow, we have that sometimes. Hey, we want to pay this building off. It's $1.2 million or whatever. Hey, we want to make a vow to help do this. You can bring it as a vow or you can do it voluntarily. I think that's the beauty of what I try to bring us to as a church is, is, is that our giving is done voluntarily because I'm so passionately in love with God that I want to do it out of a willing heart. And the final, you can even dedicate your house to the Lord and the priest will come and assess the value of it. I've had people give bicycles to the church. I've had all kind of things, fruit. You know, so I just want you to know that the expectation of God is that his people would bring offerings. Here's where it gets interesting. Again, it seems rather strange. For Christ said you didn't want animal sacrifices. Oh, why did you write the book of Leviticus then? You didn't want burnt offerings and all these other offerings. Here's that word, offering. Not thankful offerings. Not, not offerings that are voluntary, but offerings for sin. God said, I never intended them. Why did he never intend them? Because Christ said it wasn't impossible for that to even do away with sins. Because I'm going to give you a body in my son. So all the animal sacrifices of Leviticus canceled. Because of the life of Christ. We're not required anymore to do animal sacrifices. Those have all been canceled. However, the death of Christ did not cancel thanksgiving offerings, dedications, and all the others. Here's the final one. Final scripture. You must decide in your heart, if you're going to bring an offering, how much you want to give. Don't do it reluctantly or in response to pressure. So this is, not, this is just talking about regular gifts you bring to God. For God loves a person who does it cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need and then you'll always have... It, this sounds so like God. If you'll just do what I want you to do, you'll have everything you'll always need. But not only that, you can share with other people. So even my giving to God, my bringing offerings, is because God wants to so lavishly bless me back that we can bless each other. Because in the system of God's social interaction of his people, we're to be taking care of each other, giving to each other. I think that's the book of Acts. They gave so much that nobody liked anything. That's an incredible group of people. Here's the final thing, the conclusion. God's kingdom government was one of social interaction. If, and, and by this, I'm using social interaction as the book of Leviticus. It's a good starting point. Here are the five ways God does it. There were decrees for God and his people. Hey, you're sinful, bring me sacrifices. There were decrees for God's people and other gods. 
You couldn't sacrifice to other gods. He says, don't sacrifice your children to Melech like the other cultures do. So he's establishing the interaction that you, if you're my people, you don't, you don't do the customs of other gods. Why would even a god have to tell you don't sacrifice your children to Melech? It's because they were used to that. And so God has to establish that's not my expectation. The third expectation is that I have, a, I have an expectation of my people and my people working together in harmony. There was a social interaction between his people. Every camp had to pull their part. We'll look at that next time I teach. Every tribe had to pull their weight. There was an expectation on the tribes, the people working within the people. Number four, his people and outsiders. Though they're out there interacting in the, uh, you know, in the middle of the desert and they're God's people being established as a culture, other people would infiltrate the camp. And God would have to say things like, don't marry those people. It's where racism comes from when we teach it wrong. See, God didn't want them to marry outside their race. It wasn't about marrying outside their race. They were holy people that were going to marry unholy people. They was the only God that were going to marry people with foreign gods. And God's like, no, I need to tell you how to interact with outsiders. All right? And then the final one is this. <clears throat> I want to teach you how to interact as my people with your enemies. There's people out there that hate you, that want to kill you, that want nothing of you. And I'm going to teach you how to live among them wisely. And this pretty much becomes, if you want the outline of the rest of the Old Testament, this is pretty much the rest of the Old Testament. God establishes his kingdom with his people. He raises up prophets and priests. He established himself in a temple. He is the only God. There are no other gods. He starts establishing rules between the people, the kings, and the priests. And he begins to tell you, hey, look, there's other, there's other cities and other nations and people out there. Don't marry them. Don't intermarry. Don't let them in. Don't let them corrupt you. Drive them out of Canaan. Get them out. They're, they're unholy. And then the people with the enemies go in and take over. Go into Babylon. Take them over. And this becomes the rest of the Old Testament. And where we're going to end up is there's going to come a king that steps into this system and begins to establish what's so interesting, a new race of people. Holy nation called by his name, the church. I'm excited to get us there. Let me pray for us.